I'd like to welcome everybody um, this evening. Uh, my name is Peter Trubowitz. I teach in the International Relations Department in this building. Uh, and I'm the director of the U.S. Center uh, at the LSC, uh, which is sponsoring tonight's lecture on the American presidential campaign, the gift that keeps on giving. Um, so one of the things that the U.S. Center tries to do is promote deeper understanding about American politics, and if ever there was a time when we could use it, it's now. Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders have basically shaken the political establishment, many of its cherished notions about what American voters want. Um, indeed, I think for the first time in recent political memory, Larry might be able to correct me here, but I think we're witnessing an electoral campaign where the political ends on both sides are mounting simultaneously an effective campaign um, against a proverbial middle. It's very unusual. Um, and it raises all kinds of questions from underlying causes to likely repercussions. And fortunately, we have with us tonight someone straight from America's heartland uh, who can help us begin to get a handle on these questions. Larry Jacobs is the Walter F. and Joan Mondale Chair for Political Studies and the Director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance in the Hubert H. Humphrey School and Department of Political Science at the University of Minnesota. Wow, that's a mouthful. Um, so Professor Jacobs is the author, I think over a dozen, 15 books, edited books and edited volumes, numerous articles on topics that range from presidential politics to public opinion to health care. His most recent books include, well, one is just coming out, uh, Timing is Great, uh, Fed Power, How Finance Wins, it's with Oxford, it's with Des King, who happens to be in Oxford. Uh, healthcare Reform in American Politics with Theta Scotchpool, that's also with Oxford. And Who Governs Presidents, Public Opinion um, and Manipulation with the University of Chicago Press uh, with uh, Jamie Druckmann uh, from Northwestern. I think Larry is best known in political science circles uh, for uh, his very important work on uh, public opinion um, and uh, inequality. Um, his award-winning book on public opinion with Bob Shapiro at Columbia, Politicians Don't Pander, Political Manipulation uh, and Loss of uh, Democratic Responsiveness, is really standard reading in American on American politics syllabi uh, in the U.S. It garnered multiple awards from Harvard's Goldsmith Book Prize to the American Political Science Association's coveted Newstat Award and the American Sociological Association's Distinguished Book Prize. I think also Larry is chair of um, the American Political Science Association's task force, um, the task force on inequality in American democracy. This is how many of us know him. Uh, that work that he and his colleagues did was way ahead of the political curve in the United States. This, the report came out in 2004, which means you guys did the work in like 2002 or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, 
I mean, this is now a core issue in American politics. He took a lot of heat at the time when he put it on the agenda with Theta Scotchpool. And, of course, it's front and center in this year's presidential campaign. Anyway, I could go on, but you get the picture. And Larry and I don't really know each other, but, I mean, this is just, these are, these are the kind of the facts. He's, we've got somebody with us tonight who knows a lot about American politics. Um, before turning the uh, podium over to him, just a couple other things. I want to give a special shout-out to the U.S. Embassy. Uh, here in London, which has generously provided support for this lecture series. We couldn't do it without them. For those of you on Twitter tonight, the suggested hashtag is LSCUSLX. Um, I'd ask all of you to put your phone, if you haven't already, please put it on a silent so not to disrupt the event. They try to tape these things. Apparently, if the phones go off, that's a problem for the podcast. And so, anyway. Larry, with all of that, um, we're delighted to have you here. Please join me in giving Larry a very warm LSE welcome. Wow, you're very sunken. That was too generous. <laughs> thank you so much. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you to Peter, who, um, whose reputation uh, in a variety of areas in the study of American politics is uh, quite luminary. Um, and I have to say, with that generous introduction, it's all downhill <laughs> from this. Um, and of course, I want to immediately turn to social media, which is quite bizarre, but sometimes gives us insight. And here's a uh, cartoon that's been going around in the US on social media. It'll give you a sense of, of some of the surprise. Um, and, I want to immediately apologize. I mean no offense, but I think it captures the, uh, the, 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 the astonishment uh, in America. And I actually believe if Donald Trump were here, he'd, he'd acknowledge, who would have thunk it, that this guy would be uh, you know, on the cusp of um, locking down the nomination of the Republican Party. More to be said about that. What I want to do tonight is talk about um, why this is such a consequential moment. I want to tell you some of the reasons why we are at this point of two renegade candidates doing so well in America. Talk about a couple scenarios, and then we'll just open things up for questions and comments and so forth. Um, you often hear that you know the election at hand is like no other, and to a real extent that's true, of course. But this election is quite qualitatively different from elections we've seen, I would say, over the last, last half century uh, in America. There's a long-standing framework, which political scientists, of course, love frameworks, uh, that we've used for some time to explain who wins the nomination in each party. And there are two dimensions to this. One is candidates that are electable, and the knowing class nods and says, yeah, that's, that person's electable. And the candidate who is also uh, tied into the ideological orientation of a particular party. Neither of those applied to Donald Trump. Uh, there is widespread sense that he's going to have enormous trouble uh, if he were the candidate. And he is remarkably out of line with some of the key uh, dimensions of um, the, uh, 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 the Republican Party, and particularly its conservative slant over the last three decades. Um, there's also been just a kind of a herd 
of candidates, prominent candidates, senators and governors and former governors, it's usually not such a kind of pell-mell sprint into uh, the uh, primary, Um, uh, especially in the Republican side. For years, there was a kind of a trope about Republicans deciding beforehand who their nominee will be. It's usually the, the kind of leader in the Senate or someone who ran last time gave a good showing and then bowed out gracefully uh, or is the vice president. I mean, there are these, these different rules. None of that applies. It also shows how weak the political parties are in America, that the party was unable to kind of call out some of the weaker candidates. Um, Donald Trump has been uh, absolutely brilliant in generating press coverage in the most unexpected ways. He seems to have a fascination with playing with political suicide, or at least what we thought of as political suicide. Calling Senator John McCain a coward? No, I don't think anyone saw that coming. And all the obituaries were written, surely this is the end of of Trump's campaign. And yet that has happened again and again and again. It just happened uh, about a week ago when Donald, or 10 days ago, Donald Trump decided not to show up at the last debate just before the South Carolinian uh, primary, and he went on to win that by about 10 points. Um, And here's the other departure that is so striking. Both political parties have coalitions built around policy issues. Um, And we see with Donald Trump and to some extent Bernie Sanders really quite striking departures. Donald Trump is running for the nomination of the most conservative political party that we've seen in American history. And yet, here's a guy who's talked about putting taxes on hedge fund managers. He's, he's toyed with the idea of a single-payer uh, system, though he's kind of walked that back. He's uh, out front on protectionism, and on and on down the list. This is not part of the Republican policy coalition as we've known it. Uh, it, it you know, put another way, uh, Trump's uh, uh, progress is, in fact, a sign that the uh, Reagan coalition is undergoing some significant uh, strains. One of the most striking examples of that is in South Carolina, which is known for the large number of evangelical born-again voters. And Trump runs as a non-believer. The believer is Ted Cruz. He's the son of a of a, of a, uh, a minister, and th- this is, you go to his talks or his speeches, and it's about, it's kind of like a born-again mission. Uh, you know, you're in church uh, with him. And yet Trump won the born-again vote in South Carolina. Uh, and that tells you that there's, there's really a kind of a, a, a straining and a separation in the coalition. Uh, here in, in the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders, too, has taken on the Bill Clinton third way that had kind of moved the Democratic Party out of its long misery of losing elections uh, based on a kind of a a greater moderacy. And yet uh, you see Bernie Sanders talking about increasing the size of government by 40 to 50 percent. It's quite extraordinary. And the the kind of changes that he's talked about has startled uh, official Washington and um, uh, I think has really created quite a bit of a stir. Okay, so this really is a different election. And I want to start out by talking about how did we get to this point? How did we get to a point where these two renegades uh, are giving uh, both parties such a run uh, for their money? Well, you know, one explanation uh, or or question I guess I I often get is, when will the party take control? You know, they're playing it cool, but at some point the party leaders are going to merge behind a closed door and then assert control. This is a fundamental misunderstanding. 
No one is in control of either party. It is uh, anarchy to some extent, uh, though that's, that's too strong. Um, and it's very important to appreciate that. Going back to the 19, early 1970s, there was a series of reforms in each party that took power away from the party leaders and gave it to the uh, party activists. And we're living in that era right now. We're living in an era in which the delegates chosen in the caucuses and primaries make the decision about the nomination. And the power of the party to step in and kind of you know, pull the plug on Donald Trump does not exist. It's a fiction. Um, and so for, for those who are waiting for kind of America to wake up and steer away from Donald Trump, there is no steering wheel. This is a, um, a, a real event that, that's moving forward. Um, uh, one of the, the, the kind of um, storylines you often hear during presidential election years in the U.S., you get closer to uh, the national convention that, that nominates is that the press won't even cover it anymore, other than you know, an hour a, a night, uh, and there's a big fight who, who gets to speak that hour, because it's such a boring affair. The candidate is already chosen. They're just ratified or kind of celebrated uh, at these conventions because the power is uh, simply um, uh, moved on. Now, I just want to say that this is a tremendous historic irony for a lot of reasons. The history of how we moved from uh, kind of party leaders making the call, uh, which was the case in early 19th century America in something called King Caucus, where the caucuses in the Congress would choose their nominees, and by the way, it was a, a possible backdoor to more of a parliamentary system where powers were fused rather than separated. But the revolt led by Andrew Jackson in the first third of the 19th century put us on a path that leads to um, uh, national party conventions, which are then exposed during the progressive era as a uh, cover for political bosses, which then becomes a target um, uh, uh, again, for, for um, uh, not letting the people in, and leads to the system of, of primaries run in each state and caucuses. That's where the power is. But here's the irony. This movement that ran under the headline of democracy and letting the people in has actually created a quite undemocratic process. Who actually participates in these primaries and caucuses? Well, you, you may have been as, as impressed as I was about the attention of power that uh, Iowa, a state uh, that I actually live near, and I want to report that there's a lot of cornfields there. It's a very, very white state. It's a very, very rural state. Uh, it is not like America. And New Hampshire uh, is different in some of the particulars, but again, it is not America. And what we see is that about 16% of eligible voters participate in primaries and caucuses in 2012. And when you look at the, the, the actual states that are up for grabs, uh, it's quite a bit smaller. They're the ones who are choosing who the nominees will be, who the 130 million Americans are actually going to vote for come election day. This is not a democratic process. Um, I just want to give you a flavor for what I'm talking about here. This is looking at who the primary voters are. Uh, it's, it's from exit polls in 2008. Um, uh, because there were no uh, primaries in the Democratic side in 2012 because Barack Obama didn't have a, to go through this process. And you can see in black, these are uh, the uh, exit polls from the general election, and then the colors are from the, um, uh, from the uh, primaries and caucuses. Um, 
And you can see over here on the far, your far left uh, that the proportion of conservatives who are voting in uh, primaries and caucuses is about twice what it is in the general election. So the folks who are turning up and making a decision about Donald Trump are not, it's not America. It is this uh, uh, slice of America. And that slice is not representative. It is the most conservative uh, part of the country. Uh, part of the country that um, in many ways is, uh, is furious at uh, the change in America in a number of dimensions, which we will talk about. On the, uh, on the Democratic side, you can see that, that liberals are, are, uh, are more prevalent in the Democrat, on the Democratic primaries and caucuses, though, again, it's, it's not as, as sharp as it is among um, um, uh, the Republican side. So we really have to disband with this idea that we're looking at uh, America voting here. This is not America. This is a sliver of America, the sliver that is most uh, ideologically oriented and most geared to narrow issues. Now, there's also, because these are state-based uh, uh, elections that run over the course of more than four months, each state has its own composition. And we could, I could blizzard you with the idiosyncratic features of each state, but each of them have their own features. Uh, and I think particularly uh, for the Democratic side, those features are important. Now, now we come to what I think is the fundamental reason for why we've seen the uh, rise of Trump and uh, Bernie Sanders. Really the most important reason. And it's a revolt against government officials. Um, this may be the most important piece of data that, that uh, I'm gonna show you tonight, because it explains so much. This is looking at trust in government, um, and it's simply a question, do you trust the government to do what is right uh, about always or most of the time um, or not? And this has been going, this poll has been going on since 1958. And you can see back in the 50s and 60s, about 70% or so of Americans thought the government was, could be trusted. And it declined, um, but it's still about 60% by the time you hit 1970. And then you get Watergate and Vietnam, and it drops off the cliff. Um, but by the, by the early 1980s, it be, kind of bounces around a bit. Um, the era we're in right now, we've seen a sharp decline in trust in government. It's at or near an all-time low. Uh, only about 19% of Americans now trust the government. And among the most active Republicans, 6%. So when Donald Trump says the government is stupid, most people in the room are nodding their heads or shouting because they agree so much about uh, where we are right now. And this distrust in government, this is a kind of a polite way of putting it, uh, on the campaign trail, you hear all sorts of more surly uh, descriptions of this uh, fury at government. Uh, last night, there was a, uh, a, a caucus in Nevada, and the entrance polls there showed that about 60% uh, of those who were participating in the caucuses said they were angry about government. And we saw a large number also in, in South Carolina and other states. Majorities say that the Republican Party has betrayed them. And all those folks are rallying to Donald Trump. Uh, Bernie Sanders has been able to tap into that uh, quite effectively as well. well. Why is this happening? And there's a lot of kind of hand-wringing by the, the well-meaning uh, proper columnists about what's wrong with voters, that they've kind of lost sight 
of why government is so great. But here's, here's also part of the story. Uh, this is just looking at the last 15 years. Things have not been going well in America. There's been some bad stuff happening. 9-11 happened. There was a bit of a rally around the flag a moment, but then a whole lot of studies came out and showed that it was pretty significant uh, dysfunction that had uh, uh, allowed that situation to happen. We had the Iraq War, which it was soon uh, revealed uh, was launched on false premises, uh, whether intentional or not. We had Hurricane Katrina, which was an ad for government dysfunction and cruelty. Um, we had the financial crisis, uh, which wiped out a good number of, of middle uh, America. Uh, because of lost jobs and housing, with people still struggling to get back on their feet. This is not a good story. This is not a story of a government that you would have a lot of trust in. Um, and then you have partisanship. And these numbers, you can see the Republicans tend to uh, run away when it's a, um, uh, a Democrat in the White House, and there's definitely been a backlash against uh, Barack Obama as president. Uh, Democrats turn out not to be all that trustful at all for a whole lot of reasons, and it's less important who's in the White House than their distrust. So that's one theme, and it's a very important theme, this kind of deep uh, revolt against government. But there's another theme that goes alongside of it, and it's this sense that the government is run by a few big interests. Uh, Republicans refer to this as crony capitalism. Republicans con consider this as crony capitalism. There was a, a long time when the establishment thought of the Republican Party and business as closely allied. Well, that's not been the story in the last decade, beginning with the Tea Party in, in 2010, but even before that. Um, uh, and Bernie Sanders uh, has also been channeling this rage at, at big business buying government. Um, one of the most striking exchanges during the... Uh, one of the uh, debates between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, uh, one of the questioners asked uh, the candidates um, about the contributions that they'd gotten from Wall Street, and Hillary Clinton went on a well-reasoned uh, explanation about why she had gone off and given speeches on Wall Street, and uh, you know, it made a little bit of a sense, I guess, but not much. Uh, and then Bernie Sanders came back, and he just hit it right out of the park. And what he said is, um, let's not insult the intelligence of the American people. People aren't dumb. Why does Wall Street make uh, huge political contributions? Question mark. And then he went through a series of facts, such as the failure to indict and convict any Wall Street uh, executive after the, the 2008-9 um, crisis. And then he, it was a pharma, he kind of you know, laid it on. Um, and, and when he's doing this, it reflects this pattern. And this is showing you the bottom, the darker line, is the sense that government is run for the benefit of all. And the flip side is government is run for a few big interests. And you can see, once again, that this sense of government is out there for all has hit or is below the all-time low. So these, these themes of deep distrust of government and a sense that a few big interests have taken over, that is defining this campaign at this point. There's a lot of the mechanics um, and tactics that are unusual or you could draw attention to, but I don't think they're as fundamental as this environment that we are in. Now, if you watch TV and you watch the debates and um, uh, you, you kind of follow uh, some of the cable stations, you see a lot of pictures like this of people who are just enraged. Uh, and their intensity 
is, is really quite palpable. Um, and we've seen this in a number of different ways in which the, the rage has, has kind of uh, 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 moved aside uh, some of the usual kinds of considerations in elections. One is uh, this idea of strategic voting, that, that voters um, are so intense about defeating the other party that they tend to vote for their, the, the, the candidate with the best option of winning in the fall. And you could usually count on Republicans in particular for being astute and saying, yeah, we're going to throw our support or some large number of people are going to throw their support about the most likely candidate. That's probably the only reason, well, it's probably the main reason that so many uh, voters supported Mitt Romney. Not a flashy guy, not a guy there was a whole lot of trust in, but there was a real sense that this is our best shot at taking the White House back from Barack Obama. And you could see over here that in 2012, when voters were asked the most important reason uh, for supporting candidates um, in the primaries, it was likelihood of winning in the fall. Now, that has dropped to about 12% now. Winning in the fall is no longer kind of the driving uh, consideration. Very unusual. Uh, what's going on there? Well, I think it's this, this the kind of the bigger factors about rage and the disconnect with government. There's also a sense that, um, that, uh, that the usual kind of mystique of leadership, kind of the Kennedy mystique or the Reagan mystique, uh, that you can kind of uh, really connect with leaders uh, that, that have the uh, best interest of the country at heart, that that is seen as increasingly as nonsense. Uh, instead, voters in primaries, this is from um, New Hampshire, uh, but you've seen it in, in, in other polls since, exit polls, uh, are saying that issues matter. And it's important, I'll show you in a second what those issues look like. Um, we've also seen economic issues, the, the issue of the economy and jobs has declined. There was a long time when bread and butter dominated elections. Well, we've seen, and again, it's most striking on the Republican side, the huge drop-off from over 60% in, uh, in 2012 saying that the economy and jobs was the most important issue, it's now down to just a third. These are very unusual circumstances. The usual kind of gravitational pull in an election about let's go for the, the leader or the person perceived as leader. Let's try to turn the economy around. Those are no longer striking. Instead, here are the kind of issues that Republican uh, primary voters are supporting. Donald Trump's argument that um, uh, because of terrorist threats that there should be a ban on Muslims entering the U.S. who are not citizens. Over 60% in South Carolina supported that. Um, 60% in um, New Hampshire. Uh, over 70% in South Carolina. That is just staggering. Uh, particularly when you've got the uh, Speaker of the House, Republican Paul Ryan, coming out saying it is un-American, this idea. And when you have most of the responsible media coming out and slamming that idea, this is absolutely uh, phenomenal. Um, and then on the equally radical idea of deporting most uh, undocumented immigrants in America, uh, an idea that Ronald Reagan was opposed to, that, that both President Bush's were opposed to, is supported by uh, over 40% of primary voters. These are very unusual circumstances and I think is channeling this deep distrust in government. We can't trust the government to manage the situation. We've just got to put up walls, and we've got to throw people out. How you uh, remove people who are so integral to our communities is beyond belief. Um, 
Now, let me quickly uh, throw in a few caveats. There's a kind of a false equivalency that the American press uses in describing Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Um, They're not the same in, in, in really the important respects. Um, Bernie Sanders has been in elected office for over 30 years, the mayor, a member of the House of Representatives, and now on his second term in the United States Senate. He's a guy who has strong policy views that are, um, you know, I'd say, uh, uh, well past the kind of third way of Bill Clinton. But they're still about altering an existing framework. It's about expanding Medicare to all. It's about expanding uh, Social Security. Th these are, you know, kind of two clicks from the, from the established policy regime, but it is not toppling that regime, whereas uh, Donald Trump is about toppling a lot of things. Um, and his temperament is uh, respectful, he's tolerant, uh, versus um, Donald Trump, who is neither of those things. These are not the same uh, uh, types of people running. Um, let me also say, though, that, that um, Bernie Sanders' uh, path to winning the nomination is much more difficult. Uh, and my suspicion is that within a month, it'll be quite clear that, um, that he's going to lose. Um, let me give you a few reasons. When he started out, his wins were in these unusual states, or his good showings, were in the unusual states of Iowa and New Hampshire, New Hampshire being the neighboring state to his home state of Vermont. Uh, Bernie Sanders is also doing well in Massachusetts, which is another kind of, it's, it's in the neighborhood, um, and uh, he'll probably win that state on, on Super Tuesday, March 1st. Um, but now we're moving the campaign into states that are more diverse, and we're going to see Hillary Clinton get a huge win in South Carolina, and as you look at the polls heading uh, to Super Tuesday on March 1st, uh, they're already showing her with large double-digit leads uh, throughout the South. Um, and, and those leads are going to catapult her ahead in terms of those, those delegates that I was mentioning before. These are the delegates who will go to the National Convention. At this point, she's leading by, with over 500 delegates compared to 70 for Bernie Sanders. Now, in terms of the delegates, one in, in the primaries and caucuses are pretty close. But Hillary Clinton locked up about over 90% of what are known as superdelegates. These are uh, delegates who are party leaders or elected officials. Um, and that advantage that Hillary Clinton has now of 504 delegates versus 70 is going to massively grow over the next 10 days. Uh, and I think that's going to make it very difficult uh, for Bernie Sanders to, um, to prevail. Donald Trump, um, you know, he's got some challenges, and, and, and I'll, um, I'll talk about some of them moving ahead. But one of them is that the field of candidates is probably going to shrink in the next 10 days. And how will he do uh, when you have not four or five candidates, but two? Will the opposition to Donald Trump consolidate? Uh, for instance, Donald Trump won 32.5% in South Carolina, which means... 67% and a half voted for another candidate. Uh, moving forward, will that, will that, that kind of non-Donald Trump vote consolidate behind one candidate? Uh, we saw a result last night in Nevada, which had uh, Donald Trump at uh, nearly 46%, um, and that might suggest, no, Donald Trump could withstand this. I tend to think Nevada is just uh, kind of an odd state with a caucus, so I'm not going to read too much into that, but it's possible. Um, and Donald Trump, in a very odd way, has been treated with kid gloves. Um, it, there was a recent study that uh, came out that showed that the ad do dollars spent on attacks 
uh, so far, only 4% have gone toward attacking Donald Trump. There are all sorts of Republican consultants that are just scratching their heads because they've never seen a campaign in which the leader has not been attacked or even questioned. Why would that be? Well, there are a couple reasons. One is that the candidates in it see Donald Trump as having a lot of support, but they also think he is uh, what in boxing is known as a glass chin, that he's going to be knocked out of the race and the candidates don't want to offend Donald Trump's voters. And Ted Cruz has clearly been playing this game where he's waiting for Donald Trump to get knocked out and then Donald Trump's going to walk over as his best pal and take those voters. Here's another reason. Donald Trump has made it very clear that he might well run as independent. Donald Trump is not a Republican. He's given money to Democratic candidates. He supports some policy issues uh, that are actually quite dear to Democrats' hearts. Um, and yet he's running for the Republican Party uh, nomination. Very peculiar. Uh, but he, th this threat that he might bolt and run as an independent, which for sure would defeat the Republican candidate, has led the party and some of the candidates to treat him with kid gloves. Well, I think now that it's going to get down to probably a two or three person race, we may see him taking some, some incoming heat. How is he going to handle uh, that, that scrutiny that he so far has not received? Okay, so who's going to win this thing? I don't know. But I want to give you a couple scenarios um, of how I think it can work out. There's one scenario is that Donald Trump will win. That is very much the case. And I think the, um, the kind of uh, expectation of the imminent death of Donald Trump's campaign has been reported and reported and reported, and he's going stronger and stronger and stronger. So I think it's time to give that up. Um, and let me just mention that each day comes out with new polls showing his widening uh, strength across the country. Um, just uh, today, polls came out showing that Donald Trump is in the lead in uh, Ohio, which is the home state of one of the stronger candidates remaining, uh, uh, Governor Kasich. Um, in Texas, uh, Ted Cruz holds a modest lead over Donald Trump, but it's been declining. Um, if Donald Trump takes either of those states on March 1st, it's a knockout punch. You can't possibly run for president if you can't carry your own home state. Uh, in Florida, there's been uh, months of polling showing that Donald Trump has a pretty significant lead. That's the home state of Marco Rubio, the other strong alternative candidate. Um, we haven't seen recent polls from Florida, but if that holds up, those could, that could be kind of the moment at which uh, Donald Trump gets the nomination. Okay, so let me tell you why I think Donald Trump has a real shot to win the U.S. presidency. One is the political party is a tractor beam. Some people can get out of the tractor beam. You've probably seen sci-fi movies where that happens. You know, all powers to both engines and you rock it out. But it's not usual. Um, and I want to give you a sense of how strong this tractor beam is. This is one of my favorite studies. Um, and political scientists don't always publish studies you want to read and talk about at night. Uh, but this is one of them. This was a study that asked um, um, Americans uh, how they would respond if, uh, one, if their uh, son or daughter married someone from the other party? Would you be upset? Would you be displeased? Would you be unhappy? You know, how would you react to that? And you can see way over here back in the golden days of 1960 when trust was so high, uh, you only had about 5% who really cared. Fine. You may actually know, or I certainly grew up with lots of, of, um, uh, of, of friends whose parents were from both parties. It was not that unusual. Well, shoot ahead to 2008, it's a very different story. We see almost um, uh, uh, 
uh, 30% of Republicans saying they'd be pretty upset. They'd be disappointed in their kids if they married a Democrat. Uh, Democrats a little more open, uh, but still a fifth are saying that they would be uh, not so keen to have an in-law or a brother-in-law, son-in-law, who uh, was from the other party. By 2010, almost half of Republicans are so pissed off at Democrats, so convinced that the Democrat is uh, you know, not just a, someone with a different idea about the direction of the country, but fundamentally a different kind of person, that they would be upset, disappointed, displeased. Um, and about a third of, of Democrats. This reflects a very fundamental reality in America, that political party is not just a label, it is a psychological attachment. It is a, a form of tribalism. Um, I, I, to me, I've got a daughter who just got married, another one who I hope won't get married, married too soon. Um, but, uh, you know, it's unimaginable that, that you would have this kind of reaction uh, in the bonds of family. But that is the extent to which party is, has penetrated. And it matters a lot. This slide uh, shows you that about 90% or more of Americans over the last three elections have voted for the presidential candidate that their party has nominated. So what's the point of this? If Donald Trump is, is nominated, the vast majority of Republicans are going to support him, even if they have deep doubts. Will it be 93 or 4% as it has been recently? Probably not. I would guess not, but it's going to be pretty darn high. It'll be well into the 80% range who will vote for him. That's going to give him a large pool of votes. Here's another reason why Donald Trump has a real uh, opportunity to win the presidency if he gets the nomination. In America, as in other countries, elections for voters who are not necessarily well-informed or that interested in the politics, and there are plenty of them, uh, an election is an opportunity to punish or reward the in-party. And in America, over the last uh, decade or more, we see about two-thirds of Americans who feel the country is off on the wrong track rather than heading in the right direction. This is a well-known uh, survey. Um, and, and those people tend to vote uh, against uh, the Democratic Party. This is from exit polls in 2012. And it shows you that a bit more than half of the of voters who showed up on Election Day in 2012 said that they thought the country was heading off on the wrong track. And among those, over 80% who were displeased voted for the other party. Did they know a whole lot about Mitt Romney? Maybe not. But their, their attitude was, things are so screwed up, we're going in a different direction. Um, and that's going to happen in 2016. This will set up as a referendum on Barack Obama for sure. And you may feel he's done a great job, uh, but there are a lot of Americans who are still feeling the crunch of the 2008-9 uh, recession. Uh, polls continue to show 40 to 50 percent, saying that the country's still in a recession. This is seven years after The Economist declared the recession officially over. So there's plenty to be dissatisfied there, even if you're not partisan or ideological. And that's going to rebound to uh, Donald Trump's favor. Another factor. Hillary Clinton is one of the most damaged candidates we've seen in some time. And as much as you might feel that Donald Trump is, um, uh, 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 you know, has challenges as a candidate, his disapproval, her disapproval ratings are pretty similar to his. And at least Donald Trump is seen as authentic, which is not the case with Hillary Clinton. Um, 
This is from a New Hampshire exit polls just from a month ago. And it shows you that when voters were asked which candidate is more honest and trustworthy, 95% said that Bernie Sanders was honest and trustworthy. Only 5% said the same thing about Hillary Clinton. And this includes, obviously, many of her supporters. Nationally, we see that 60% say that Hillary Clinton is not honest or trustworthy. That's very difficult to run as a candidate with that level of, of, of disbelief in what you're saying. And I think those numbers will be sustained. There's a, a nagging story that the Clintons wish would go away about the private email server that, that Secretary Clinton used at the State Department. I have no idea where the Clintons get these ideas. It's, it's kind of like they need chaperones. Uh, because for whatever reason, they love to kind of walk perilously close to absolute political extinction. Now, I was at the uh, Washington Post uh, about a week ago uh, visiting with some friends there um, who are in the investigation team. And this topic of Hillary Clinton's private email came up. And I said, well, of course, that's a non-story because what we know is that the State Department, the CIA, have been going back and declaring emails that were released, private emails that, that, that went on her server, uh, have now gone released. They've now declared them top secret or top secret. And Republicans have made great hay about that. So this is post hoc classification, and it's really just a political issue. And I was sternly lectured why that was wrong and why Hillary Clinton uh, had a process and needed to use two different computers and that she was part of the classification system. Um, I continued to express skepticism, and the word I got is that the FBI and uh, pretty senior uh, legal folks who are not on either party believe that there is an indictable offense here. So this issue is not going away. The private emails will continue to dribble out, and the effect of it, even if she's not indicted, will be to continue to prime the sense of Hillary Clinton's lack of trustworthiness, her lack of honesty. That's a big problem, and it's very difficult for a candidate. Bernie Sanders' attack on Hillary Clinton for the Wall Street money is also hitting home. Uh, this is, again, from the New Hampshire uh, exit polls, and it's been showing up in the others about um, caring about people like me. Uh, and again, he has a lopsided advantage, and it's another area where Hillary Clinton uh, is, is, is struggling. And this will continue, whoever the general election candidate is. Now, if, well, now I'm going to flip it the other way, Bernie Sand, uh, if, if uh, Donald Trump is the candidate, here are some of the challenges he's going to have uh, and why this is going to be absolutely a brutal election. So my suggestion is don't get too worked up about Donald Trump at this point. Uh, he may well win the nomination, but it is not um, a certainty that he would win the presidency even if he's up against Hillary Clinton, who's a flawed candidate. So, some reasons why uh, Donald Trump has got big hurdles ahead of him. One is that the, uh, a good number of Republican leaders and conservative thinkers hate Donald Trump. They feel that he's destroying the party. And to be honest with you, it's not an unreasonable suggestion. Uh, the National Review, which William uh, Buckley f uh, founded about half a century ago, and is meant as a uh, kind of a uh, the, 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 the place where smart conservatives could uh, have intellectual conversations and has had an enormous impact on the Republican Party. They came out with a special issue uh, within the last month um, that uh, uh, had, uh, the, was devoted to uh, 
um, the arguments about why Donald Trump should not be the candidate. In their view, Donald Trump stands for everything that the conservative movement since, Walt, since uh, Barry Goldwater has been building. He is the enemy. Um, it's one thing to fight against a Democrat. It's another thing to be taken over by someone who doesn't hold conservative principles. Um, that might have an effect, um, and we'll see. I don't think it's going to you know, diminish that party-line voting uh, much below 80% or 85%, but it will have an effect, and that might, in a close elections, particularly in some of the key states, it might make the difference. Elections often come down um, in the United States and elsewhere to so-called swing voters. These are voters who are not in either party, who don't really pay attention, not that interested in politics. And um, you can see the battle here is pretty close. It's, in, in American football, it's like between the 45-yard lines. It's right in the middle of the field, back and forth a little bit. Um, but Donald Trump, he has said so many crazy things uh, that um, uh, don't seem to have affected him in the battle for the nomination of the Republican Party. But the opposition research done by Democrats they're watching, and they're doing all sorts of preparation if he's the candidate uh, to run against them. Donald Trump himself said recently that he can stand on Madison Avenue in New York City and shoot someone and still get the nomination. And that's probably an exaggeration, but it's worth thinking about. Um, he's, he's clearly uh, um, uh, connecting with people in the primary, which again is not America. This is a slice uh, and not a representative slice of the country. Um, now, I want to come to the third reason that Donald Trump is going to have problems, I think, if he's the, the nominee. And this is a very important story about America, because we tend to think of America and, and the electorate in static terms. But the electorate is being transformed. And I want to tell you about that, because regardless of who wins this presidential race, this is America's future. This is what American politics will be shaped by and has been shaped by in the last two elections I think, in the future. Donald Trump has made statements about uh, Hispanics, about immigrants, um, and, and Muslims that are outrageous. Uh, there are very few uh, people who are kind of um, you know, familiar with world politics uh, and think seriously about it who are not appalled. And, and I'm including a lot of Republicans, including a good number of my friends who are, who are prominent in Washington. So let me tell you what's going on here. If you look at the history of immigration in America, we are, um, uh, uh, we are in a phase of a second great immigration. Um, now, the composition of this immigration has changed a little bit, um, and um, the research on this talks about new immigrants and then their offspring. And, and, and the, the recent pattern uh, reflects both those things, a slowing down of new immigrants, but a picking up in their offspring. Um, but the story is very clear. You can see in the late 19th century, 14.5% of, um, uh, of um, U.S. citizens were foreign-born, 14.5%. Uh, in 2015, it was up to 13.9%, and it is clearly growing. So we will be, in short term, past that. Um, this is a very profound change. It is a very sharp change. And some of the things that you're hearing in the campaign trail and that you hear from everyday Americans reflects an astonishment, a resentment, and prejudice against this enormous change. This is looking at um, the, the uh, composition of this change. If you look over here uh, in 2015, you'll see that 
of, um, of the country is white. And 12% is African-American, 18% uh, is uh, Hispanic, and 6% Asian. Now you go back a half century, you would see that the country was 84% white. So in just half a century, we've seen a startling change. I mean, usually demographers talk about shifts of a few percentage points. This is a true transformation that's going on in America. Now you move ahead another 50 years, and the white population will be in the minority. And this is, uh, when you look at the numbers broken down by age group, it's really the, um, the, the population under the age of five uh, that is being born. It's, this, it's kind of the new immigrants and their offspring. And it's, it is really uh, transforming the country and it's having enormous impacts on um, our politics. I want to give you a sense of what this means politically, but also what gets me really excited in terms of political data. Here's my very favorite factoid that gets me excited. Um, this is looking at the proportion of uh, whites who voted for the Republican presidential candidate. In 1980, Ronald Reagan won a landslide. He had 55% of the white vote. In 2008, Mitt Romney lost decisively. He had 55% of the white vote. I'm sorry, John McCain in 2008. And then in 2012, uh, Mitt Romney had 59% uh, of the white vote and lost. What's going on there? Well, the story is in the bottom part, which is when you look at white voters as a portion of the electorate, it's been steadily declining from 89% to 72% in 2012. In 2016, it will be 68 or 69%. Could be a little lower than that. That is just an enormous change. And for Donald Trump to overcome this is going to be very difficult um, and, and maybe not even uh, within the realm of possibility. This is looking at some of the swing states that will be battled. Lots of states in America, it's quite confusing, I know. Where does Montana actually reside? Don't spend a lot of time on it. Minnesota, you want to know about because it's a great state. But uh, when the elections get going, the money, the candidate time, the, uh, uh, the staffs of each campaign are going to focus on 12 to 15 states. And there will be a couple that are particular importance. The two most important are Florida, way down here, and Ohio, up over there. And you can see, this is showing you a map of where the Hispanic population is concentrating. Florida, these dark areas are where the Hispanic population is, is residing, has been transformed in the last uh, you know, half century. It looks very, very different. Uh, you've got um, uh, Latinos coming up from Latin America. You've got uh, 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 um, uh, Hispanics from all sorts of other parts of the, of the world arriving in Florida. So it's a, a, a quite remarkable and sudden change. To win in Florida as someone who's against immigrants and is uh, you know, referring to Mexican immigrants as racist, or I'm sorry, as rapists, very, very difficult. This is not a, 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 a scenario that is very promising. And Republicans themselves know this. Uh, back after the 2012 election, the chairman of the Republican Party put together a, a study group. And they came back and said the Republican Party cannot win if it continues to marginalize itself among this new population I'm describing. Singled out immigration is the most important thing Republicans could do politically to make themselves competitive in the general election. And this is the reality. They have clearly failed, the party has failed to do that. Um, 
Ohio, not as dramatic as Florida, but it's, it's changing. Uh, and in the state that's very closely contested, the uh, foreign-born population could well be the deciding part. Uh, out in the West, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, these used to be states that were safe for Republicans. Um, Ronald Reagan kind of lived there because he just, you know, these kind of mountain states were a real uh, hotbed for the new right. Um, and they've been transformed uh, in Nevada, uh, increasingly uh, Hispanic uh, state. Uh, Colorado, which is up over here, and New Mexico. These are states where the, the Democrats are now consistently doing well, and it's because of this changing uh, population. So the bottom line here is that America is quite different. And for Donald Trump and his uh, uh, statements that have been so disparaging of people of color and uh, immigrants, it will hurt them in a general election. So let me uh, stop there in a thoughtful pose and welcome questions or comments <laughs> or, or outrage. Thank you. So, Larry, thanks. That's a terrific overview of, I, I think, the campaign and the electoral landscape and the ways in which it's, it's changing. I know there are going to be a ton of questions here. I, I want to ask you just one. It's a quick question, uh, and you'll have to try to give it a short answer so we have time for other questions. I mean, if we end up with Trump versus Clinton, the way that you've described it, this is going to be a brutal campaign, you're, you're dealing with two people whose negatives are both above 50 percent. I, I don't know, it's probably, I don't know if there's another example of two no. national candidates running like that. And so each one is going to try to drive the negatives on uh, of the other Absolutely. one. And so it's going to get, it's going to be worse than we might imagine. And so I guess the question for people on this side yeah. of the pond is what is this going to mean for governance in the United States, no matter which one of these folks wins, or maybe there's a yet another candidate, a Bloomberg perhaps. But, um, mm -hmm. I mean, are, are we going to just, we're going to continue to see the kind of polarization and dysfunction that we've seen, but maybe kind of like on steroids, or, or what? Okay, so an uh, excellent question, and, and I've got two reactions. One is, um, keep the freak out to a minimum, right? I mean, you're going to see an election. It's absolutely going to be very negative. Donald Trump is wired to negative, um, and it works for him, uh, so he's not going to stop. Uh, and whether it's Hillary Clinton, but more likely surrogates or super PACs that will uh, mm -hmm. set up as kind of character assassinators of Donald Trump. And uh, to quote a friend of mine, uh, who works in the military, Donald Trump is a target-rich candidate. Um, so this is going to be brutal. Um, and what I would say, though, is I would not surmise from that sort of harsh campaign that America's heading off the edge. Um, when you look at government, uh, we tend to personalize it. It's Barack Obama or it's George Bush. And for sure, the president matters. But in the bigger sense and the more um, operational sense of what government does, it's the three or 4,000 folks who the president brings into office. And these folks tilt left or right, but they're generally on planet Earth. Um, and there are all sorts of uh, folks in the White House and the surrounding kind of policy community who are intent on particular issues, 
political folks who are concerned about um, re-election or the sustain, the, the kind of sustaining their 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 political uh, uh, coalitions. So that will be a moderating factor. Um, folks who are displeased with Barack Obama feel that he's not been as liberal as they expected. And it's partly because of this moderating factor. George Bush is, you know. Uh, in Europe, not liked in part because of the Iraq War, but if you look at some of his policies, uh, he expanded Medicare by giving drug benefits. He created a, a policy, which turned out to be flawed, but I think it was well-intentioned to try to raise educational performance, particularly among people of color. Uh, the work he did in Africa on, um, on AIDS and, and other uh, illnesses of poverty. Um, you know, this is, this, is not a, this is not an administration as without some pretty significant accomplishments. And I think that reflects partly in the president, but much more on the government that comes into office with them. Okay, that's great. So what we're going to do is I'm going to group questions, because I know we're going to have a lot of questions here. And so I'll take three in a, each pass. Um, Leslie, we'll start with you right here. Um, and uh, one sec. Go ahead. Hi, thanks, Leslie. And please Jamori. introduce yourself. Yeah. Leslie Jamori from SOAS. Um, great talk, uh, grim, of course, but but I like your your closing point. My question is: um, It seems from your analysis that for Trump to be effective in a general election, he would certainly have to tone it down, since those who vote are more moderate than, in the generals than they are in the primaries. And so, what is the mechanism? for toning it down. Uh, a, do you think he's smart enough to do that? I'm skeptical. And so B, who's his running mate going to be? And do you have any sense of, of who that might be and, and or what the options are and how those would affect the outcome? And then my, my comment slash question is, doesn't it strike you as very likely that the swing voters, uh, the data on swing voters in, this, in 2016 are likely to be far greater than we've seen in the past? if Trump becomes the nominee, simply because of you know, what you've demonstrated, which is that those who vote in the general election are just of a fundamentally different character from those voting in the primaries, and Trump is of a fundamentally different character than candidates we've seen in the past. Okay, I'm looking for a student. Right there in the blue, right up here. I'll, I'll, we'll get a bunch of people. Right. Um, Thank you very much for your lecture. Um, I'm an LSE student. Um, if Mitt Romney decides to endorse Mark Rubio this month, would this be an asset or a liability to uh, his campaign? And then there's a woman back there with a white scarf. She's got her hand up right there. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Lauren Dammer. I'm a student at UCL. Um, so, so, so it's interesting to me that Donald Trump is able to win. Is it, that, that, it's interesting that Donald Trump may be able to win the nomination despite never really getting a majority of the votes. And so to me that shows that there's something inherently broken in the U.S.'s election mechanism. Yet there's not really a lot of talk about how to reform that or how to change that. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on whether or not, or whether or not a reform to the U.S. election mechanism is actually possible and what that reform could be. So three easy questions. Yeah, actually, um, some of the questions were multi-parted, um, so there, there are lots there. Let me start with the, the last one. Um, I, too, think that the American election system, particularly the nomination process, um, is deeply flawed. I think it was a well-intentioned effort to expand democracy, but it was a flawed concept to think that democracy was defined by the intra-party competition. 
There are reasons for that. I understand them. But I think when you look at the result today, which is highly unrepresentative, it's a narrow, single-issue, highly ideological group that are determining who the vast majority of Americans are going to vote for. 130, maybe 140 Americans are going to vote based on two candidates that were selected by you know, just the sixth of the country. It's, it's, and even smaller if you look at the votes, they're going to matter. It's, it's crazy. So how to change it? Very difficult. And I've been kind of on a, um, a little bit of a uh, campaign to try to think about how to do it. Uh, the problem is every time you come up with an idea, uh, you run up against this idea that you're undemocratic. And even today, Bernie Sanders has been attacking the use of superdelegates uh, as undemocratic. I just think it's the wrong place for democracy. My personal view, and this won't happen, is that the American uh, dabbling with party reform uh, has, has really turned its back on the role of political parties. And I would say that in Britain, um, and this is a big switch, uh, the stronger political parties who decide who is the, who's being nominated to run for office has real advantages. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders would never have been nominated. Neither of them are members of the parties of which they are seeking the nomination. It's just absolutely peculiar. Um, Bernie Sanders is a self-declared democratic Jerry socialist, Trump. which is fine. And he, he, he uh, runs as an independent, but he's not a Democrat. Uh, and Donald Trump, as I've been saying, is, well, who knows where he, where he is, but he's, he's not a loyal Republican. So I think the solution here, and, and this is not a feasible solution, is to strengthen the political parties. Some of the ideas have been uh, talked about is looking for ways to uh, conduct campaign finance reform. Um, I'm sure it's something we'll, we'll get into, but to increase the role of political parties in distributing money. In other words, to give parties a resource to, to better discipline uh, the candidates and help winnow out uh, the folks who don't really represent the party. Um, but I, I, I think you put your finger on exactly the challenge. I think what America is facing today, it is a symptom of the party disease that has afflicted the country. Um, uh, the question about Bush endorsing Trump, I don't think it's going to have much effect. Um, I'm sorry, Bush endorsing Rubio, I don't think it's going to have much of an effect because Bush didn't have much of an effect. Um, it was, um, you know, there's just a lot of kind of, uh, uh, kind of Freudian uh, stories to be told about the Bush family. But this was the son who was supposed to be president, and uh, he's, he was a, a, a deeply flawed candidate. Some of you may have seen the very first press conference when he announced his candidacy, and a reporter asked a very tricky question. Uh, Mr. Bush, uh, do you think your brother's war in Iraq was a mistake? And he didn't have an answer. And he didn't have an answer for days afterwards, and then kind of tried all different sides before he kind of didn't answer the question. Um, so I don't think it's, it would have much of an impact. Um, uh, and it's not clear if or when it would happen, if it would be. I mean, this campaign could be locked up by the middle of March. So would George Bush, would uh, Jeb Bush turn around from, from being a kind of a pincushion to Rubio and feeling betrayed by his younger uh, mentee uh, within that period of time? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, there's no doubt that the number of swing voters will be larger this time. I think that's going to be from both sides, both parties, going to kind of move in that direction. I suspect, as I think you do, that some of the Republicans will peel off. I would just emphasize, I wouldn't have high expectations about those numbers. The kind of the party tribalism is so strong that well over 80% of Republicans will still support Donald Trump. It is just a tractor beam. 
Um, uh, uh, so I, I think they'll be modest. I do think that Michael Bloomberg, who you may know, was the mayor of New York City. He um, was a Democrat, then couldn't get the Democratic nomination, so he ran as a Republican. Uh, he's fiscally conservative, socially moderate. Um, he's been looking at running for president since to be the third cycle. Uh, the thing about Bloomberg is he, he does things to win, and they're, they're doing a lot of polling. They're doing a lot of talking about uh, whether he could win. Uh, the, the scenario in which he's publicly talked about this was that Donald Trump would be the candidate and Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. then he would go. But if it's a situation with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, even though he's not happy with the direction Hillary Clinton's gone in, um, you know, he may see that as too formidable. If he does run, what would the effect be? Very unpredictable. Uh, I could see him drawing from both parties and perhaps helping to elect um, uh, President Trump. So we've got a blue sweater down here. We'll start here, then we'll come back over here. I'll try to get everybody in. Go ahead. Thank thank you very much. John Neum, I talked to American politics for 30 years, and I don't know the answer to who's going to win either. But my question concerns the issue of money. Uh, Donald Trump makes a great issue out of not uh, taking any uh, special interest funds, but he would, being a multi-millionaire. So my question is, what is the significance of a campaign so far on the continuing argument over money in American politics? There's an unprecedented amount being spent at the moment. Yeah. I'd like to go upstairs if we've got a question up there. We do. There we go. <clears throat> Thank you very much for, for the exciting lecture. I was actually in the United States not too long ago, so I think I would like to speak of one issue that I feel very strongly about, that is lumping like people of color or minorities or whatever that term may refer to together, because I think it's really something that shouldn't be lumped together. For example, I mean, when we speak about Donald Trump, people say he's crazy, but personally, I, I know a lot of Asian Americans are swinging from Democrats to Republicans, partly because Donald Trump's might be Donald Trump might be, uh, I mean, against immigration on, in so, on some issues, but he has spoken to pro-work visa for STEM degrees and PhD holders. So that is certainly benefiting a lot of people who are within the Asian American community. And uh, also, I think... We need to try um, to keep the question short because we're short on time, so... Yes, sorry. Um, probably just address the question of whether we should lump the minorities together. Yeah, that's the short question. Right, thank you. And we'll take this gentleman down here in the blue sweatshirt. Right, there we go. Uh, you've talked a bit about um, superdelegates, uh, particularly on the Democratic side. Um, do you see if, perhaps, Bernie does have some success in the, in the coming uh, primaries, that maybe some of those superdelegates could sway? I mean, that's happened in previous elections and does have quite a big impact. Thank you very much. Um, uh, you know, what we've seen in the past is that superdelegates haven't mattered. Because, and even in the very close race between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in 2008, in which there was a sense that superdelegates might be the deciding factor. Um, and, you know, by the end, you, know, you do get a bit of a bandwagon effect, uh, or the candidate builds up enough of a cushion. So we'll see if, it, if this is a determining factor. As I look right now at, at the next set of races. Uh, Hillary Clinton has got you know, 10 to 30 point leads 
throughout you know, many of the Deep South, Georgia, Texas, uh, and other states uh, heading into those races. So I, I, I do think there's a strong chance within uh, you know, two to three weeks that she's just going to have an insurmountable number of, of um, delegates and will be ratified uh, come July at the Democratic uh, convention. In terms of diversity, I very much agree with that point. It was why I put up the slide to break out uh, different groups. Um, and it's also the case, for sure, that it's a mistake to assume that any one demographic group would vote lockstep um, you know, f- uh, uh, for the Democratic candidate as opposed to um, the Republican candidate. It's also the case, though, that we have seen pretty dramatic changes tracking voting over time in each of those groups. So, for instance, if you look at Hispanic voters, um, uh, Republicans in the past have, have not done poorly among Hispanic voters. George W. Bush in uh, 2004 got 44% of Hispanic governors. He was uh, governor of Texas and had worked quite closely with uh, um, uh, the Hispanic community there. Uh, it was respected for that and talked about it and talked about and promoted immigration reform. Uh, and his party defeated him on that. Um, but we saw with Mitt Romney, his proportion of the Hispanic vote dropped to 27%. And the issue, I th- and, and similar numbers for Asian Americans in terms of their voting disposition. It's true that uh, there, there are these policy reasons why you might expect a bigger gap. But what appears to be the case is that the hostility that the Republican Party is projecting at this point publicly about immigrants is being used as a cue for a whole lot of other considerations. Um, uh, you know, I think the, the strongest case that Republicans make is on um, kind of entrepreneurial arguments, an American dream. That resonates very well in the, and social conservative issues. It resonates very well in the Hispanic community, which has large numbers of otherwise conservative folks, but then chased away by what is seen as the hostility of the Republican Party. Um, there's no doubt that money is uh, a huge factor uh, in America, um, and it's bizarre that the, uh, one of the rich people in America is running as a populist. Um, he's actually tried to use that, and I think has used it to his advantage in an odd way of saying, I've got so much money, he brags about. He gives these talks and talks about how rich he is. Um, and he uses it to, tries to use it, and I think has been effective so far in using it to his advantage to say, look, I've got so much money, I don't need to be bought like Jeb Bush. And he would taunt Jeb Bush. There was a, a debate um, couple, within the last couple of weeks in which he would give an answer and there would be booing. And he just looked out and said, these are the lobbyists. These are the people who are buying the other candidates. Uh, I can't be bought because I'm rich. Um, and, and in an odd way, it's... Um, but I think the general issue raising is really important. Uh, the 2012 election was about $2 billion spent, which is an obscene amount of money in a country that uh, has seen such a rise in unemployment, inequality, and other issues. Uh, this time around, we're probably going to be looking at 4 to $5 billion spent. And uh, some of it will be coming through the campaigns and the candidates, but a good bit of it is going to be coming through these um, so-called super PACs and these um, coalitions or networks, particularly, uh, I think, on the conservative side, uh, we know the name uh, the Koch brothers, but there are others, and it's created a constellation that is both pumping money in, helping to build candidates, and developing uh, uh, pretty sophisticated uh, materials in terms of policy positions. So it, th- this is a large topic, uh, and it's just not good for democracy. It's a, it's a perilous path we're on. So we got a question over here. Uh, she's holding up 
something that's lime green. There we go, right, yeah. <clears throat> Um, my name is Wernie, and I just want to ask you a question on Barack Obama, because mm-hmm. what I find very interesting is a, a very kind of abnormal amount of like, antagonism between Barack Obama and Donald Trump, and what are the historical issues behind that. And I, also on a second question, I was wondering what do you think about Obama's antagonism. potential antagonism. impact on the campaign perhaps Perfection. later on? Yeah, thank you. Okay, that's the first question. Um, let's go back in the corner over here. Yep, you, uh, got you. Uh, hi, I'm Matthew Sapter. I'm a uh, UCL student. Um, direct follow-up to the money in politics um, with Donald Trump. I was watching CNN last week, and uh, we, we all know that about a, you need about a billion dollars to run a good general election campaign. And someone raised uh, the interesting point that in Donald Trump's uh, sort of assets, he, he doesn't have the money to self-fund a campaign himself right. because right. he's a real estate mogul. Yeah. So how do you think that will affect his message and his campaign when he has to go to lobbyists to get the money to fund general election campaign? And we'll, we'll come right up here to the front. There we go. Hi, my name is Victoria. I go to the University of Notre Dame, so kind of behind you. Um, go Yankees. Is, pardon? No, go ahead, sorry. Oh, Irish. Um, <laughs> Irish, I know that. There you go. Okay, so Bernie's immigration and free tuition policies has him in favor with people of my generation, but the young vote doesn't really seem to be pushing this, this election at all like it was in the last election with Obama. I just want to hear your thoughts on that, like what my generation is going to do in this election. Um, it's a really interesting question because there's a, there's a major tension in uh, a within the Democratic Party and among progressives across the generations and across gender. Um, the, the support, when you look at exit polls, the strongest support Bernie Sanders has is among young people, uh, 18 to 30 uh, being the strongest area. Uh, when you get to folks 60 and over, that's the strongest area of support for Hillary Clinton. Um, the big debate in America over the recent um, uh, uh, kind of competition between Hillary Clinton and um, Bernie Sanders has been over the issue of feminism. And it's just fascinating um, uh, what that, that has provoked. You may have seen some of the comments about, um, you know, younger women are supporting Bernie Sanders because that's where the cute guys are and um, really distasteful to kind of been walked back. But there is, I think, a very uh, profound um, uh, debate going on. Um, and I think this is the, one of the main fissures. Uh, what does feminism mean? What does progress mean? Um, you know, there, uh, I, could, I see it in my own family when my wife feels very strongly that the fact that she can get a, a high-placed job and be kind of a boss versus my daughter just takes that for granted and has a different notion of what progress means for women and what the challenges are, and they're supporting very different candidates. That is a hot issue, and, and um, uh, I think it's probably a pretty healthy debate, uh, though not in my family. Um, rather not be there. Um, the issue about where Trump is going to get his uh, campaign contributions, uh, you know, I don't think he'll be passing the basket, you know, the money basket. Uh, I think a lot of the money supporting him is going to come from super PACs. Um, the reason being that they would much rather have Donald Trump, who, uh, for whatever his flaws are, is someone is going to be more supportive than Hillary Clinton um, or 
Bernie Sanders. Uh, and that will drive it. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Donald Trump showing up and giving uh, speeches to donors. Might happen, but I, I'm, not, I'm not expecting that. Um, plus, Donald Trump is the kind of guy who makes phone calls to, to friends <laughs> and can raise quite a bit of money that way or deputize people. He's going to be sensitive to that because his campaign has really been built on, um, on uh, running that down. Uh, the relationship between Donald Trump and uh, Barack Obama is very interesting. Um, clearly, there's antagonism. But the way I would put it is the hatred of, of Barack Obama uh, among Republicans is the context in which is, that is happening. And you can look at that and say Republicans uh, are being unfair. Uh, uh, they shouldn't be treating the president this way. On the other hand, I would say it's not irrational. Barack Obama is the most consequential president uh, in a second term that we've probably ever had. And probably the most consequential progressive uh, liberal president since Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s or perhaps uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The impact he's had in reshaping the, the landscape uh, in terms of domestic and foreign policy is absolutely extraordinary. And I think the response of Donald Trump and those Republicans is, um, is rational in the sense that he's taken the country in a direction that they truly think is wrong for the country. Now, does it get expressed in, um, in um, uh, on civil ways, for sure. Is there a kind of a, a sub-theme, or not so subtle, sub, a theme of racism? Yes. Uh, but I don't, think that's the, I don't think by any means that is the primary factor here. I think it is a profound disagreement about the direction of America. So I think we have time for one last round of questions. We'll start right over here. Woman in the white blouse. Hello. Oh, it's Maria Menasi alumni. Two quick questions. First, um, getting to your point of government's trust and the dysfunctional state of the government at the time, what mechanisms would you suggest to like, remedy that? And the second one, the role of foreign policy, uh, embedding that in the broader question of looking at climate change, EU imploding, refugee crisis, Russia meddling, um, how important is that issue, and where is America heading? And right across the aisle, there's a guy right, right in front of you. Uh, in, there we go. Uh, Peter Lyons, I, I'm not a, and haven't been an SE student because you chose George Soros instead. But my question is, uh, it's the first time there's ever been a female presidential candidate. We haven't had one mention of it this evening. Why? And right back here, uh, woman next to the column, right? <clears throat> Uh, thank you for my thank you for your talk. My name is uh, Emily Strickland. I'm a master's student here at LSE. Um, I had a question about the institution of the presidency. Um, Stephen Skoranek talks a little bit about how the presidency is changing, and now we're sort of in this like plebiscitary area era. And I my question was whether or not you see that being disrupted into another era, and also if um, Trump were elected or Sanders. Um, what would that do to, what would the effect be on the institution of the presidency vis-a-vis -vis other uh, branches of government? Thank you. This is not a plant, but th this research, th your question is about the research that I'm most closely associated with and involved in, so thank you. Um, <laughs> um, you know, the idea of a publicitary presidency is a president who uh, uses 
his access, unparalleled access to the press and to the public as a way to build support and drive through policy. And um, this has been widely talked about since Ronald Reagan. Um, the research actually shows that that has very little effect in passing legislation in Congress. Um, there was for a while quite a bit of criticism of Barack Obama for not really pushing hard on his health care reform, which explains why the country is turned or tilted against it. And so we did a little bit of research on it. It's actually Barack Obama's been campaigning consistently and fervently for his health care reform. The problem is the press doesn't cover it. And so we went and you know, tracked his speeches and looked at the press coverage. So I think one of the key issues challenging this, the president's ability to go uh, public and move policy is that the press doesn't play along anymore. They don't cover uh, presidents when they're giving speeches. They're often reclassified as just politics. The second factor is there are very, very few people uh, in Congress who are literally up, you know, willing to talk and willing to uh, enter into a discussion uh, and consider changing their votes. Literally, maybe a handful of the Senate uh, because partisanship is a rope that ties them down. And if it's not, they're not personally partisan, it's they're looking over the shoulder at the primary voters that I've just been describing as highly ideological and they know that if they go forward and vote against their, their primary voters, they'll be tossed out of office. Um, on the issue of Hillary Clinton as the first female candidate, I was perhaps too subtle when I was talking about this issue of um, gender and, and, and this election. But I think the core issue is whether and not uh, the fact that Hillary Clinton would be the first female president matters. That's what's being debated. And for um, uh, women who are, let's say, 45 and older, it definitely matters. Uh, and I gave the example of my wife who's, who uh, you know, kind of grew up under the old era and has fought. Uh, and it's certainly true uh, among her colleagues who are a decade older and have been mentors to her. It matters a lot. For younger women who followed, um, it's less of an issue. And um, you know, I encourage you to go on social media sites. You'll see the intensity with which uh, a lot of younger women are pushing back against this idea that they should support Hillary Clinton because she is a woman. They feel more strongly attached to the idealism and the political revolution that Bernie Sanders is talking about. They see Hillary Clinton not primarily as a woman, but as someone who's uh, capitulated to the political establishment and to big money. I'm not endorsing those views, but that's the debate. And then I think the last question was about what are the remedies, um, actually two questions, very clever, uh, the remedies for <laughs> political trust. And um, you know, I think there, there are a couple ways to think about that. One is, as I showed you, the performance of government has not been great in America. There's been just um, a, a string of failures by the political elite. So I think part of it is um, uh, more responsible governance by those who are in charge. Uh, what happened, you, the deeper you go in the financial crisis, the more outraged you should be. It was something that should never have happened. Um, it should absolutely never have happened. Uh, the investigation by Congress, by the, uh, the, um, uh, their financial uh, inquiry commission uh, showed that there were numerous steps in which the Federal Reserve, uh, Chairman Greenspan, uh, and other regulatory bodies just looked the other way and believed against belief that uh, the financial sector would regulate itself. And then even as the crisis broke out in 2006 and 2007, failed to act. Um, and that's just the kind of mishaps by individuals. There are cases of outright corruption. 
uh, that have not been prosecuted. So you, know, you look at that and you put it together with the other sorts of things. I think the, the burden is on elites to start governing in America in a more responsible and less petty sort of way. Um, foreign policy, you know, I think the story here is not necessarily an optimistic one. I think foreign policy is probably not going to play much of a role in the U.S. elections. Um, uh, uh, Donald Trump is running as a, uh, as a kind of a neo-isolationist. Uh, his protectionist stand is almost without precedent among front-leading uh, presidential candidates. Uh, there are enormous challenges in the world. You mentioned some of them, global climate change, Middle East, uh, the, the, the kind of renegotiation of power lines in Asia, and on and on down the list. And these are not really being talked about. Uh, if they're raised, they're talked about in very simplistic ways. What I would tell you is that each party has quite distinct views about what those things would look like. Um, and I think in those areas, it, it's a real concern. Uh, put another way, I think the world should have a vote in U.S. elections because it's so important, <laughs> but I wouldn't count on Americans putting the same emphasis on it. Very good. So a polite reminder. I have a, a note here. This is actually not from Larry, um, but from the conference team that Larry's book, Who Governs, is on sale outside, and he's going to stick around for a few minutes to sign, uh, sign copies. Larry, I want to thank you for, you know, abandoning the tropics of Minneapolis to <laughs> come all the way over here to give what is just a really fantastic presentation on the U.S. election. Please join me in thanking you.